you have to have a good working knowledge of what has conspired in the prior year. So that when tax case comes, guess what? You're prepared to show your records. You're prepared to show that you have done your due diligence and that what you pay in taxes is right. And I'm going to compare that to the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord is coming. The judgment of the Lord is coming. And the question is, are we ready? And because that's what Joel is getting at in his prophecy here. The whole book of Joel is about the coming day of the Lord. Joel just happens to mean Yahweh is God. So next time you say Joel, see Joel, remember that. <laughs> um, but Yahweh is God. And Joel is not just speaking from personal experience or opinion. It says, the word of the Lord. Joel is not just making up things. But it's interesting, Joel starts in chapter 1 with a picture from a current crisis in Israel, or in Judah specifically. And that crisis is locusts. And the crisis is so bad that this is what he says about it. In verse 4, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Now, in an agricultural community, that is complete devastation. We haven't experienced locusts in the United States. But if you go to Africa and Asia, they experience this. The sky gets so dark that it's almost as night when the locusts come. Can you imagine the fear that would come upon a farming community that if, that, if those locusts come to their area, what's going to happen? They're going to lose everything. They're going to starve. They're going to have nothing. And so Joel starts out in chapter 1 comparing the day of the Lord to this locust crisis. And then in chapter 2, he begins by showing an army coming. A devastating army. An army that cannot be stopped. A destructive army that is actually led by the Lord. He's saying, God is sending this army to destroy His people because the day of the Lord is coming. The judgment of the Lord is coming. But there's something good still. Because if you look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12, there's hope. Yes, the day of the Lord is coming. And it is going to be like these locusts that are going to destroy all your crops. It's going to be like these, this army that is coming to destroy all that you own and take all for itself. 
But, in verse 12, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. This is a call to repentance. Why? Why, why would you do this? Well, he gives us right here in 13. Now return to your Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind. Wow. Do you see the grace of God, His compassion on display here? I hope so, because Joel is not saying God will not save. Joel is saying, yes, the day of the Lord is coming. It is going to be an awful day. But there is hope. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Guess what? In verse 18... We see God's response to repentance. It says, Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. Interestingly, in the Hebrew text, this is actually past tense. So, it should say, The Lord had, was zealous for his land, and he had pity on his people. So, Joel is actually talking about an actual event that already happened. And if we look at Joel's history, uh, the history of Israel, how many times did God relent when the people of Israel repented? At least ten times in the book of Judges alone. Well, maybe ten. I'd have to go count the judges. But every time God relented, when they repented, that's a good line. So he is speaking of an actual event that already happened. And it's interesting that he says this because this is why I believe the book of Joel was written after the return of Israel from exile. One added point to that is, Joel addresses this book to the elders. He doesn't address it to a king, which is interesting because most other prophetic books are addressed to a king or a prophecy is addressed to a specific person. But in this case, it's elders. So there wasn't a king over Israel when Joel made this prophecy. So, and there, there, we see also that in chapter 1, a couple places, that they're still offering, or they're offering sacrifices. So likely it is after the rebuilding of the temple under Zerubbabel, but before the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. So he has actually seen this happen. He's seen God at the repentance of his people in Babylon them back and place them 
back in his land. He's seen this happen. He's seen God's mercy and grace. And he goes on with this promise all the way up to the passage that we come to. And he ends that section with this phrase in verse 26. You will have plenty... Well, let's start for 24. The threshing floors will be full of grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. Can you imagine? There is so much produce that when they're stomping the grapes and when they're stomping the olives, that the vats will overflow. There will be so much oil and grain. Then I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has, the swarming locust has eaten, the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust. My great army which I sent among you. So, all these things, I'm going to make up for it. It's going to be overabundance. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. I mean, that is a talk about a promise to hold on to, right? Every physical need that they have is supplied. They're not going to be hungry. They're going to have plenty of oil, which oil wasn't just used for food then. Oil was also used for lighting, for cooking, to to burn for cooking. They need to drink. All of that provided, but While the previous promises are great, they are not the promise that we should rest in. You see that? Because when we get to verse 28, there is a greater promise, something that is far greater than all this blessing. Because God's blessing, His full blessing, is His Spirit on all men. That's my first point. God's full blessing is is His Spirit on all men. This is the blessing. This is the promise we must hold on to. We must hope in. Because those physical things will come and go. But the Holy Spirit, when He is poured out, will not leave His people. Verse 28, He says... And it will come about after this. What? After God has blessed His people, physically speaking, this will happen. That I will pour out My Spirit on all mankind. Who? God. Right? Just God? What... Sorry, I'm asking a question because I know where this is quoted. Do you know? Do you remember where this is quoted? This passage? It is essential that we know where this is quoted. Because in Acts chapter 2, P- 
Peter bases his whole argument, his whole message to the 3,000 who come to Christ on this passage. And what does he say about this? Well, why don't you turn there with me? You'll keep, need to keep your thumb in both places because I don't think we can understand Joel without Acts. And we can't understand Acts without Joel. This is a clear example of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. You want, a, you want an infallible commentary on an Old Testament text? Well, go to a New Testament quotation of that text. Yes, I like Matthew Henry, and I will quote him today, but he's not infallible. This is infallible. This is what he says about that in verse 33. So he's already quoted this in 17 through 21. But in verse 33, after he's explained the death and resurrection of Christ, Paul or Peter says this, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, who's he talking about? Jesus. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, who? Please answer me. Who? Who's he? Jesus. Jesus has poured forth this which you both see and here. Jesus Christ is the one who pours out the Spirit because the Father has given it to Him and He has poured it out. So who is I here? Specifically, it's God, but most specifically, it is the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. So Jesus pours out His Spirit on all mankind. And this is, has never happened before, a pouring out of His Spirit. In the Old Testament, only drops of the Spirit were let out. On a man, or a woman, or on a king, a judge, a prophet, There was never a time when God's Spirit was poured out over a whole group of people. You don't see it. But what God is promising here is to pour out His Spirit on all flesh without discrimination. He doesn't look at the people and say, oh, well, you're not a prophet, you're not a judge, you're not a king, I can't pour my Spirit on you. No, God does it without exception. And this outpouring is so dramatic that Peter sees that what happens at Pentecost as the only possible explanation for this. How else do you explain the extraordinary events of Pentecost? Unless you know Joel. And unless you know what it's seeing. Because imagine this. They're all in one place. 120 believers. Servants of the Most High gathered together. 
men, women, young men, old men, disciples, apostles, they're all together. And when the Spirit is poured out, the scene that happens is 120 people prophesying in other languages. Imagine that. I think sometimes we think, oh, it was just 12. No, multiply that by 10. There were 120 people prophesying in other languages. What were they prophesying to? Of the mighty works of God. It reminds me of Joel leading up to this. Joel has prophesied about events in the past that have happened and God's mighty work in bringing salvation to his people and turning his people to himself. Prophesying is not always future. Isn't that interesting? I think sometimes we read the Old Testament and we think, well, prophecy is always pointing forward. But did you know that Moses was considered a prophet? Not just because he spoke of the future, but because he spoke of the past. Did Moses live in the time of Noah? No. Did, no, did Moses live in the time of Adam and Eve? No. Did Moses live in the time of Abraham? Or Isaac? Or Jacob? Or Joseph? No. In all honesty, the first time we actually see Moses is in Exodus. And yet, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. It is a prophecy of God of the past to Moses. So when they are prophesying, they're prophesying about what God has already done. In what? In Christ Jesus. They're preaching the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you can imagine, maybe there were Jews there that didn't understand. And it just sounds like drunk babblers. Yeah, they were mocking them, but has anyone here tried to have a conversation with a drunkard? Or have you ever had a drunkard try to have a conversation with you? (laughs) I have. And guess what? It sounds like Babel. So it's no wonder. And Paul and Peter, if you look with me back there at Acts chapter 2, he is using Joel to defend the fact that it sounds like drunken Babel. To say, this isn't. What? Right? Because they, they're accusing them in verse 13, but others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine. They've had too much to drink. But Peter, verse 14, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. They would have had to been get been woken up early and started drinking, is what he's saying. But this is what is spoken of through the prophet Joel. Yes, this is 
bizarre. You've never experienced something like this. This is completely different. But Joel spoke of this, and it shall be in the last days. And it's interesting, Peter, he changes the word here in Joel, that is, after these things, he changes it to the last days. Is Peter getting a little frisky with Scripture? No, he's inspired by the Spirit. He is making a point. He is taking what Joel has said and he is making it clear, not only in his quotation, or not only in his explanation of the quote, but in his actual quote. He's making it more clear. He's, he's getting a, bitter, bit, a better picture of what is happening. And it shall be in the last days. God says that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Sounds just like Joel, right? But this was a dramatic experience. It wasn't just some everyday occurrence. 120 people all speaking at the same time in different languages, but all to the glory of God. What that must have been like, I don't know. I, I, I know what it's like to be in a group of people from all, all over the world and praising God in one language, but I can't imagine what it must have been like in multiple languages. Peter is seeing here at the day of Pentecost a more full meaning than what Joel prophesied. God, through His Holy Spirit, is opening Peter's eyes to see the fullness of God's meaning in Joel. But interestingly, it's interesting, he says here, on all mankind or all flesh, the word there is actually the word flesh, translated flesh. The Jews and Peter would have actually thought, well, by all flesh... He's talking about his people, which in a sense is true, but they would have said only the Jews. You say, well, well, surely Peter didn't think that. Well, why did it take God commanding Peter to go to Cornelius' house for him to believe that God had the Spirit for them? And it was only after the Spirit was poured out on Cornelius' house and they spoke in tongues that Peter believed that the gospel was for them. And then he had to go make an argument for it in Jerusalem. Do we see what's going on here? Even Peter, at this moment in chapter 2, doesn't have a full understanding of what all mankind means. Yet he has a fuller understanding than Joel had. And then Joel explains. And then Peter interprets as well. Joel explains in the second half of verse uh, verse 28 what he means by all flesh. 
or all mankind. And your sons and daughters will prophesy. I think this is interesting. It Not only is it sons and daughters, meaning your offspring, your children, but women and children, or women, men and women. Did you know that in the 120 that were in the upper room, there were women? Yeah, there were. That means there were women prophesying on the day of Pentecost. I don't know what language they were speaking, but they were there. I don't know if Eutychus was there that day. Who knows? The one that fell out the window. Remember him? (laughs) I don't know. But Paul uses the same language. He doesn't change this. But we see that God, when he says all men... God's Spirit, and this is my second point, God's Spirit will be given without discrimination. Because when the Spirit is poured out, God gives it to all. To the sons and daughters. Which means that the parents already were getting it, right? He's he's explaining how much more is going to happen. So it's not just mothers and fathers, but sons and daughters. And not just to the young, but to the old. These are results, right? Dream dreams and and see visions. Those are some of the results of the Spirit being poured out on men. And we see those. Think about the, the dreams we see in the book of Acts. Paul, a dream to go to a certain place. Or... The dream that, he gave, that God gave to Ananias so that he would go to Paul? Because there's no way Ananias was going to go to Paul of his own volition. God had to show him. Or think about visions. Stephen. Remember the vision he had of Christ right before he died? Talk about a vision on this time. We see these things, maybe not exactly happening on the day of Pentecost, but we see these things happening in the book of Acts. And I would dare say, we should see them today. I know that's not necessarily popular among some circles, but I think we should. And we should seek to prophesy. And we're going to talk about that when we start doing 2 Corinthians. Because 2 Corinthians 14, Paul is encouraging them more than anything to prophesy. And I think we need to have a good understanding of what prophecy is. Because I think we have forgotten. And we're convinced that it's not as full as it is. So, that's a side note. We don't have time to get in that today, but we will have time. And so, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, the young, the old, no one's left out. People say, well, I'm over the hill, I'll let the, the Spirit pass on to the next. Baloney. Do you know the only time that Elijah's 
blessing left him when he was already with the Lord. And then the, full me- the double measure of his spirit was placed upon Elisha. Not before Elijah left, but as Elijah was going up into heaven. Elijah didn't sign his retirement papers and then just quit the church. No, he was going up to meet his Lord when his, the double measure of his spirit was placed upon Elisha. And Joel says here, even, I don't know how, even on the male and female servants, bond and free. Remember that, Galatians? And this would have been so against Jewish views because as Matthew Henry says about this passage, he says, The Jewish doctors say, prophecy does not reside on any but such as are wise, valiant, and rich, not upon the soul of a poor man or of a man of sorrow. But in Christ Jesus there is neither bond nor free. I love that, what he says. The Jewish people thought, well, if, if, if the spirit of prophecy is going to be on somebody, it's going to be someone who has, has worth to the world. But what God is saying is, I will pour out my spirit without discrimination on who or what the person was. You want to fix racial problems? Lead people to Jesus. Because when Jesus transforms the heart of a man or a woman, they will be unified with His people. We've been talking about that. But this is proof of it. God does not discriminate. Except in one way, and we'll see that. And it's not based on their personality It's not based on their age or whether they're a son and daughter or a mother and father. It is not based on their social status. It's interesting. When Peter translates this, he changes a little bit of this. If you turn over back to Acts chapter 2, in verse 17, or verse 18, especially of the bond slaves section, he says, even on my, that's not in the, the Joel, my, on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. What is Paul, what is Peter intimating or understanding here? I think Peter, and, and from my studies, adds my to show us that God will and is pouring out His Spirit on His servants. Why? So that they will prophesy, which is to fulfill Acts 1.8, which says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. What's happening when they're prophesying? 
They're witnessing or testifying of the great works of God. Both in Jerusalem, that's where it started, Pentecost. That is when the witnessing started. This very movement. And in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remote part of the earth. And this, brothers and sisters, is why I don't believe But we see here, I believe that Peter adds my to show us that God is pouring out His Spirit on His servants, both men and women, so that they will prophesy, they will be filled with His Spirit, so that they can be His witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And that is why I don't believe the gifts have ceased, because the mission of God has not been completed. I don't care what anyone else says, It is not done. And it will not be done till the day of the Lord. This is the beginning of the end. This is what will happen before the end. And how do I know that? Because he says so right here in verse 31. Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, these things will happen. It is a precursor to His coming. This wouldn't preach very well in some churches. And you can guess where. But we see that when God pours out His Spirit, it is for His glory, it is for the proclamation of His name. It is not about us. And that is something that I think we have missed sometimes. I'm not saying everyone, and I'm not saying it completely. But I think a lot of times we seek the gifts, but our motivation is not God's glory, but our fame. How many times have we heard about a god a movement of God among a group, or on a man even, and that person becomes famous, and then they turn from the Lord. You don't see that in the book of Acts. I mean, the only example we see is people who are faking uh, their tax returns to Peter. Well, not really tax returns, but they're faking their sales to Peter so that they can feel good about giving money and make people think that they're giving everything, but really they aren't. Sounds like somebody with their taxes, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Thankfully, the tax people, for their sake, are not infallible and know by the Spirit of God that they're lying, because otherwise they'd all get caught. Anyways, uh, complete side note. (laughs) Wasn't even in the message. Uh, But that being said, when God is doing His work, it is for His glory. The only other person you see in the book of Acts that falls away is Demas. 
Well, it's not even in the book of Acts. It's in Paul's letters. You don't see people filled with the Spirit going astray. Which is interesting. Something to think about. Even though I know Paul, he speaks about, you've tasted of the gift. Well, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews, whoever, if that was Paul. May we not be those. We need His Spirit because what is coming in that terrible day requires His Spirit because God's day of judgment is still to come. We see that in verses 30 and 31. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. And the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. These were all signs of judgment. And it's interesting, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. What does that make you think about? Is there an event in biblical history that that makes you think about? Maybe this will... Ring a, ring a bell. So it came about on the third day, when it was morning, that there was thunder and lightning flashes, and a thick cloud upon the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke. Because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked violently. And when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke. And God answered him with thunder. I think... Joel is alluding to this. This was a day of the Lord. It wasn't the day of the Lord, but it was a day of the Lord. God came down to earth and He met Moses and His people. His people couldn't even go and touch the mountain because of His presence. That is how awesome and holy God is. And when the day of the Lord comes, if Christ is not on our side, we will not be delivered. Because God's deliverance is for the called who call. Okay, I know that. Let me say it again. God's deliverance is for the called who call. That's my fourth point. And I believe that's what he is talking about in verses 32, in verse 32. Because before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, these things are happening, and it will come about. 
that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord. Peter changes delivered here to saved. If you turn back there to Acts chapter 2. Verse 21. And it should be that who everyone, whoever, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, every. Who calls on the name of the Lord? You're like, well, whoever? Really? Whoever? Yes, whoever means whoever. And how can I say that? Because Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 10. He says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul doesn't make distinction. Peter doesn't make distinction. God does not make distinction. If you call on the Lord, you will be saved. It's interesting, God is the one who calls us to salvation, and men call on the Lord to be saved. We call on Him, He calls us to Him. But Joel doesn't leave it there. It's interesting, Peter does. He doesn't doesn't quote all the way to the end of verse 32. He stops there. But I think it's interesting and something we need to see here. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. You want to be a remnant? You want to be a survivor? You want to make it? You want to be saved? God will call you. Respond and call upon Him. It is not in us to call on Him first. He, on the day of Pentecost, through Peter, was calling upon the Jews from all over the world to repent and turn to Jesus. Because who is the Lord? Here in verse 32. Who is the Lord? Well, what does Peter say? Turn back to Acts. I told you, you need to keep your hands there. In Acts, Peter makes this statement at the end of his message. We already know that Christ is the one who pours forth the Holy Spirit, right? Verse 33. And then 
Peter makes an argument for Christ being Lord. And he says, therefore, verse 36, let all the, it, all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is not making an implication. He is making it explicit that Jesus Christ is the Lord in whom we must trust. He is the Lord on whom we must call. Jesus is the Lord of Joel 2 and the Lord of Acts 2 where it's quoted. Paul is not leaving it to our interpretation. It is Christ the Lord who we must call upon. But it's interesting that he leaves that at the end. Why? Because this whole message is God calling upon the people of Israel. Right? The message is God's call to them. Repent. Turn to the Lord. And you will be saved. And what is the result of that? What is the result of Pentecost? What is the result of the message that is based on Joel's prophecy? Well, look at verse 37 of Acts 2. And when they heard this, I think this means verse 36 most specifically, but holy, the, the, the sermon of Peter, they were pierced to the heart. What happens? Their heart is beginning to rend. Right? That, remember the repentance we talked about in Joel? That heart-rending repentance? And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, What shall we do? I think there was consternation in their voices. What can we do? We are wicked. We need Jesus. What can we do? What does he say? Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, or Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he ends in verse 39. For the promise, what promise? The promise of the Holy Spirit. This promise that has just been quoted from Joel. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Amen. This word, phrase, the Lord our God will call to himself, is almost a copy from Joel. Right? Yeah, he adds a few words here, but he's implying what Joel said at the very end of his prophecy in verse 32. All who the Lord This promise of salvation. 
This promise was far vast, more vast than even Peter understood at this moment. God hadn't revealed to him the full measure of God's grace yet. But he will. And he'll see the greatness of this promise, not just to the Jews, but to all mankind. All whom God will call to Himself. The question is, have we called on the Lord? Have we repented of our sins? Are we relying on the Holy Spirit to live holy lives? To be witnesses to His great name? Are we willing to prophesy? Are we willing to dream dreams and have visions and all that the gifts of the Spirit bring? We say we're willing, but are we? We need to ask the Lord because I believe we should be experiencing these gifts today in this place. And we should experience them on the street Monday through Friday and Saturday. This should be an everyday experience because when you look at the book of Acts, there wasn't a cessation of the gifts during the week. It wasn't like, oh, on the weekend God moves and then, and then during the week, oh no, oh, I can't wait till Sunday when God will move again. No, the Spirit was with them every day and they were witnessing to The name and glory of Jesus Christ. God was getting glory. You think having threshing floors overflowing with grain, you think oil and new wine flowing out of the vats is an incredible blessing? The Spirit is way more Because out of you shall flow rivers of living water. It will overflow and it will meet the world. And it will transform your lives, your family's lives, and our church. I don't want the Spirit to flow so that one of us gets fame. I want the Spirit of God to move in this place because God deserves the glory. And no man can... Look at what this Holy Spirit does and attribute it to man. It must be attributed to to God because it is extraordinary. It is supernatural. Cry out today for a fresh filling of the Spirit. Because I do believe that God gives and pours out His Spirit multiple times. You see it in the book of Acts. Right? Remember Peter and I can't have, can't remember if it was Barnabas, John. Anyways, they're questioned, they're warned, never speak of this name again, and they're like, Well, if you think we should obey you rather than God, you you're you're wrong. And so then they they go back and they rejoice that they're persecuted for the name of Jesus, and they pray that God would 
fill them afresh with the Holy Spirit so that they could be even greater witnesses to His glory. And what does the Lord do? He pours afresh the Holy Spirit upon them. I think there is a time when we are filled. We ask the Holy Spirit to come in. But I believe that we need a fresh infilling. Not, not so that we're better than anyone else. It's all about His glory. Because when they were filled again, they went out in the streets and proclaimed the gospel with power. It was effective. If you want your ministry to the lost to be effective, you need the Holy Spirit. It is impossible for you or I to change the heart of anyone. You can't save a single soul. No matter how good your words are, how eloquent, how well argued your words are, you will not save a single soul. But the Holy Spirit in you can transform every life that you talk to. doesn't mean that everyone you talk to is going to be saved, but the power of the Holy Spirit is able to save even the worst person that you can imagine. If He could save you, He can save anyone. And that's where I leave us today. We need to walk in the Spirit. We need to remember the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we haven't been born again, we, we don't even know what this is talking about. But if we have been born again, we can cry out to the Lord to fill us afresh with His Spirit. And ask Him, Lord, I, I want to see Your prophecy flow in our church. And I want to be a, a vessel. I don't care how much people may mock me or people might criti uh, ridicule me. I can't even speak. <laughs> I don't care what they do. I want to be used by you for your glory. And Lord, don't let me do this for myself. Okay, let's pray and then we'll sing a couple songs together. Father, I praise you and thank you for your spirit that you've given to us. Lord, give us an expectation of your gifts flowing through us. Not for the name of this church, not for the name of any individual in this room or anyone who hears this message, but Lord, for your glory. The apostles and, and the disciples on that day who proclaimed and prophesied of your great works were not talking about themselves. They were seeking to glorify you. And, and, and in all honesty, Lord, they received mocking and ridicule from many. Lord, when we serve you with the gifts that come through your Holy Spirit, we will be mocked and ridiculed, but we will also glorify you. Lord, guide us as a church. Guide us as families and individuals. Lord, if there's anything in our hearts that is hindering the move of your Spirit, whether it's sin or uh, bad motivations, wicked intentions, Lord, I pray that you would expose those to us so that we can repent and see your Spirit move. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your Spirit on each of us so that when we gather together, 
And when we're apart, we would be empowered to witness to your great name. Lord, thank you for your, your spirit. Thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. Thank you for calling us so that we could call on you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.